Welcome back to the program. We all know or have heard about life in the Silicon Valley. The perks, the collegiality, the PowerPoint, the team ethos. In fact, perhaps the most successful company to master the Internet is none of those things. It engages in predatory pricing practices. It is fiercely competitive. It eschews both PowerPoint and perks. Its leader was Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1999, and yet he is just now, 14 years later, reaching the zenith of his power. The company is Amazon and its leader and founder, Jeff Bezos. Clearly, the company is doing something different and doing it very, very well. Now we have the best picture yet of Bezos and Amazon in Brad Stone's fascinating new book, The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. Brad Stone has covered Amazon and technology in Silicon Valley for over 14 years. He's currently a senior writer for Bloomberg Business, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about the Everything Store. Brad Stone, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. One of the the more interesting things, I suppose, about Amazon is that it is a company that is both of technology and apart from technology. In many ways, as you talk about Bezos, it's almost a combination of Steve Jobs and Sam Walton. That's absolutely right. Amazon is a peculiar hybrid. And you can say that really for the first half of its life, it was more retailer than technology company. Bezos read Sam Walton's autobiography. He really transplanted a couple of pieces of Walmart DNA into Amazon early on, you know, starting with frugality, um, you know, what both companies culturally, culturally call a bias for action, which is basically empowering even your low-level workers to go, you know, root out defects and make improvements and suggest innovations. And he learned a lot from studying Walmart, from sitting down with Jim Stinegal, the founder of Costco in 2001, the, the insistence on low pricing and, you know, how to kind of root out inefficiencies in your cost structure and really, you know, get your costs down to support low prices. And in that respect, Amazon is very much a retailer. And then in the second half of its life, it, it, it realized that, you know, retail, e-commerce was kind of the least inspiring, least profitable business model for the Internet, and it began to expand into ways that make it more closely resemble a technology company. The other aspect of it is the way that Bezos has been a survivor for so long. I mean, even during the dot-com crash, when he saw the stock go from in the hundreds down to about seven, he somehow managed to be the last guy standing. That's right. I mean, first of all, he... He bet more than anybody, right? So Amazon raised more money than perhaps any Internet company ever. You know, aside from an initial public offering, which was relatively minor in early on, 1997, they went and they raised over $2 billion in debt to expand fulfillment centers and branch out into new product categories. And at the very last moment, you know, as they're in this growth cycle in around 2000, they go and they raise one more round of debt uh, in Europe. And that allowed them, actually, it was almost fortuitous, or, or at least uh, uh, good timing by the CFO then, Warren Jensen. Um, it allowed Amazon to kind of skate through the dot-com bust when so many of the other competitors were, were dying out. And But also you have to give it to Bezos for flexibility uh, in the heat of battle, where, where, you know, when things were getting grim back then, he went and he struck deals with AOL and with uh, some competitors like Toys R Us and uh, Borders go and run their e-commerce operations, and that brought in cash and allowed him to survive. So he's kind of done what he's needed to do. Uh, he's grown the company when times were good, and he's managed to 
you know, contract and, and, you know, lay off people and close fulfillment centers when times are bad. One of the points you make about Bezos is how fearless he is, that through it all, through good times and bad, that basically he never blinked. He has an underlying conviction that the Internet is going to change business, that it tilts the playing field in favor of customers, and that the company that provides the best experience wins. And I think there's also a belief that, you know, online shopping is superior to to big box stores, that you can get better selection, that your business model is more efficient since you're storing, you know, one set of inventory in a fulfillment center rather than a dozen, you know, in the stores in that region. And because he's got that belief, he just believes that, you know, Internet, that there's no limit to what can be sold on the Internet. And and that, um, you know, the company can really scale. So he's been comfortable very early on, and maybe this is also its nature, and just pushing down the accelerator and, and uh, you know, running Amazon as fast and as aggressively as he can. And in some cases, you know, <laughs> taking the turn so sharply that only two wheels are on the road. And, uh, and it's paid off over the long term. One of the other interesting contradictions of Amazon and Bezos as a retailer is that he has both been a discount retailer in the tradition of Walmart, as we were talking about earlier, and yet he has been insanely focused on customer service as if he were a boutique retailer in somebody like Nordstrom's, for example, and he has managed to square that circle. That's right. Um, and he, he actually, there's a, a memo uh, within Amazon around 2003 where he calls Amazon the unstore. And what, he's, what he means there is that it, it, it kind of gets to break all the old rules of retailing. It can run negative reviews in addition to positive reviews. It can, it, you know, it can, it can shirk off the pricing traditions and categories like jewelry. You know, it doesn't have to double or triple the wholesale price. And um, I think, you know, to your point, it, it can be Nordstrom's and Walmart, you know, it, because customer service really – you know, it's really scalable to, to use a horrible uh, Silicon Valley word online. Um, you you don't need to you know put and this might be a you know benefit criticism of the model. You don't need to put you know really nice uh, you know um, sales salespeople in every store to go you know like at a Nordstrom's to go kind of tailor uh, the customer experience. You know they can have a, a phone bank uh, somewhere else in the world. That uh, that holds customers' hands when they need it, and in large, and in many cases, customer service is self-serve. And you know, and, and one of the things that Amazon gets praised for, you know, rightly is, you know, when a when a when a you know shipment is defective, um, they'll let you send it back, or they'll just give you a credit. And that's just money, you know, that's just money. They're throwing money at the problem, and they have the business model to support it. So they're able, and it's taken them a while. I don't think Amazon was as good. In customer service, you know, five even five years ago, as it is today, but they've really managed to make that a, you know, a kind of core competency, something that they do extremely well. And now we're we're seeing them leverage it, you know, with the new tablet, you can press a button and a, you know, customer service person pops up in a little window on your tablet screen. So Bezos definitely sees it as a as a core Amazon advantage. And one of the other things that you talk about is the way that he has looked at customer service, not only as a particular aspect of the retail business, but that customer service was was a part of the marketing exercise in a significant way. I think that's right. Um, you know, it's it's funny. You, you see so many companies now that 
just take advantage of their customers and and just I'll just pick on on one because I, I was just flying yesterday on Delta <laughs> and they're they're blasting advertisements you know throughout the cabin uh, at the beginning of the flight and it's just like this is something that you know Amazon won't you know doesn't do like it it, it figures out it, it's actually very it is customer focused and they'll bypass revenue opportunity if they think it's a bad customer experience how they make mistakes but. You know, you, the, the canonical example is you go to try to find a, uh, you, you know, you, you go to try to buy a book that you've already bought. Maybe you forget that you've bought it. And they'll tell you, and they'll tell you not to buy it because you've already made the purchase. They'll make sure that you're – so so they, they run past a lot of revenue because they do want to be customer-focused. And, you know, they, they've, of course, you know, rung the bell on that a lot and made sure that people understand that they're customer-focused. Talk a little bit about the aggressiveness with which Bezos has run the company, even to the point of driving out competition and engaging in predatory pricing in some cases and, and being willing to lose money to drive that competition out of the market. Right, absolutely. We're, we're, I'm, ta- I'm going on about the customer focus, so let's flip over the coin and, 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 and acknowledge that it's a very ferocious company. You know, the best example, I think, and there are a couple we could talk about, but the best example is, is what they've done to, uh, you know, the, the world of book publishing. There are not a lot of uh, booksellers, or for that matter, book publishers, that think very highly of Amazon. Now, there's a lot of animosity. You can really feel it uh, in the industry. And there are a number of reasons for it. You know, Amazon drives incredibly hard bargains. Um, you know, with uh, with book publishers, it you, like all big retailers, it uses its its size, its scale, uh, to say you know it's our way or the highway. And if you don't like it, we're not going to re- recommend your books, or in some cases, we're not going to carry your books. You know, they've gotten into those kinds of disputes. But the the second major flashpoint is around ebooks, and around the mid part of the last decade, you know, Amazon started to get kind of desperate to to be the leader. In, in digital reading, you know, they didn't want Google or Apple to get there first, and so they they went out and they played real hardball with the book publishers. And you know, um, after working with them for a while and being kind of dissatisfied with the pace of progress and with the publishers digitizing their books, they started to make threats and you know pull publishers' books out out of recommendations and and uh, all along uh, kind of hiding their intention to. To price ebooks at nine ninety nine, and and we see even today the ramifications of that initiative. You know, there was an antitrust case against Apple and and the book publishers when they tried to get together to set ebooks higher because nobody was happy on Amazon's pricing. And um, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why you know, Bezos does, does not have a a great reputation in the circles, particularly of New York City book publishing. And in many ways, that ferociousness, that attitude, is really what represents or seems to represent the culture of the company. As you talk about, it's a pretty ferocious, pretty gladiator-like place to work. And I think it's it's probably pretty similar to some other high-tech environments. You know, Microsoft under Bill Gates, certainly Oracle under Larry Ellison, um, and, and Apple under Steve Jobs. You know, these are founder operators, you know, visionaries who have incredibly high standards and who are very impatient uh, with with the colleagues who who don't meet those high standards. And maybe it's necessary in the in the fast uh, paced world of high tech, where you know everything is changing. I mean, we've seen what happens to companies that kind of stop innovating, right? That's Yahoo for many years, or AOL. 
And Amazon alone has really managed to keep firing on all cylinders and growing. And maybe that is because, you know, Jeff Bezos has set, uh, created a culture at Amazon that is uncomfortable. You know, there there is a, a bias towards big thinkers, towards disagreeing with each other, um, towards, you know, you, you're, you, you know, leaders are right a lot. And, it, you know, and if they're not, they leave. Um, and, and these are all in the cultural values uh, that are posted, actually, on the Amazon website. And I talked to a lot of people and uh, former and current Amazon employees, and, and some suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder after the, they left. But by and large, and this was remarkable to hear, they all felt like they had done their best work at Amazon, or many did. And I think, you know, it, it's one of the reasons why the company is successful. One of my favorite stories is how Bezos has basically banned and eliminated PowerPoint in favor of these narrative memos that are required at the start of meetings. Talk a little about that, Brad. Right, right. The the company is really kind of tailored towards how he thinks in many different ways, and this is one of them. About 10 years ago, he just decided that PowerPoint presentations concealed lazy thinking and that people were wasting his time, and he wanted a better way of starting meetings. And he decreed that meetings should start uh, by everybody sitting down quietly to read a written memo uh, that, you know, the, the, the leader of the meeting would prepare called a narrative. And at first these were, you know, novella-length documents, and so they quickly decreed that they should have six-page limits with an appendix for, for data and spreadsheets. And and even today, I mean, nobody believed that this would, you know, stick, and I'm sure there were lots of engineers at Amazon who suddenly, you know, found themselves thrust back into 11th grade English, but it, it did stick, it, and, and it's one of the idiosyncratic parts of Amazon culture. And it's funny because I, ta- I asked a lot of former Amazon people, you know, did you take, did you take this concept to your, to your next company? And some have tried, and it kind of never worked. And I think it's because, you know, it's Amazon culture is specific, and it's kind of tailored toward how Jeff thinks. It's deeply ingrained there. And, you know, though it's weird and, and newcomers find it unusual, it, it seems to work. But it also goes to the heart of, of this narrative approach to things in general that Bezos takes. And as you talk about the importance of reading, the importance of books, the importance of knowledge within the context of Bezos and the company. That's right. It really is a reading culture. I In the book, I have an appendix where I kind of list all the, the books that were uh, or at least some of the books that were most important to the company and to Bezos, and really they all they always have formed reading groups at different levels of the company and and selected books and discussed them. And I was surprised to find, as I did my research for the book, that a lot of the big decisions at Amazon could be traced to insights that were gleaned from some of these books. You know, for example, well, uh, you know, a, a widely influential book is The Innovator's Dilemma by. Clay Christensen, right. and but but you know Amazon didn't just read that; it, it kind of you know listened. It, it followed the ingredients, and when they were uh, working on the Kindle, you know, they they implicitly understood that they had to go and really try to kill their own business. And, and Jeff Bezos structured it that way. You know, he told Steve Kessel, the executive in charge of the of the of the first Kindle, you know, to go and put your former colleagues out of business. You know, and that was his mission. And it sounds brutal, but it really is what Christensen prescribes in the book that you have to be willing to, you know, create a separate division 
and and separate it from the body of the company, and then to go and, and tenaciously pursue the opportunity, even if it's going to hurt the more profitable part of your business, because the long-term opportunity might be better. And and it's one example, and there are many, you know, many books that underlie, you know, even things like Amazon Prime and Amazon Web Services. So to your point, yeah, it's a reading culture, and it's probably something that a lot of other companies could learn from Amazon. It's interesting that in spite of Bezos being as as interesting and charismatic as he is, and the company having a kind of glamorous or Silicon Valley-like reputation, it is in unglamorous businesses. It's in the retail business. It's in the shipping business. It's in the, the web infrastructure business. Now that it makes forays into content creation, what does that mean for the company? Because it is different in many ways from where it's been. Well, I think they actually, you know, it's a, that's an advantage. They have they have this kind of unbreakable base. I mean, you could you could say that maybe Walmart and, and some other big retailers are kind of making a run their core franchise, but you know, Amazon shifts from fulfillment centers to people's houses better than anyone. Um, you know, even the WalMarts of the world are trying to figure out how to use their stores as fulfillment centers. So they're kind of taking different approaches. So when you consider you know, that there is that unglamorous kind of franchise. I think it's a competitive weapon and a reason why if you're at Apple or, or Google, you might feel a little threatened by Amazon. Uh, the fact that, you know, these are, you know, low, extremely low margin, you know, businesses that Amazon is in and that dominates, uh, they're very hard. You know, it's very hard to, you know, to, 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 to weaken that base. Um, if, if it's not profitable, there aren't a lot of competitors that are going to go take a run at Amazon. Uh, so, so to Amazon right now, everything looks like a glowing opportunity, you know, with, with better profit margins. You know, but if you're Apple, uh, and, you know, not to knock the company, it, it's doing tremendously well under Tim Cook. But, you know, there's plenty of hands thrusting up for its crown. Uh, you know, the, that device business and the PC business is very highly contested. Uh, so, you know, they, they have to do a little bit more work to protect their core franchise. Um, you know, perhaps Google is in a little better position, but you know has a has a search business with enormously high margins. So while while Amazon has proven itself expert in the kind of you know the these these let's call them low altitude businesses with a lot of muck, I think it gives them gives them a pretty strong base of operation as, as it tries to expand in all sorts of directions. Uh, you know, into devices and into enterprise services. It's interesting that the company they seem to bang up against, but but haven't really been able to to dent very much, is Netflix. That's right. It's testament to Bezos's vision that, and and really why I titled the book the Everything Store. You know that they want to be all things to their customers, and video, you know, is a is an important shelf on the Everything Store. You know, it was DVDs for a long time. Was, that was a significant part of Amazon's business, and they were late uh, in seeing that. I think that category was transitioning to, to digital. I think they watched Netflix for a long time, but thought that you know the subscription uh, DVD business wasn't uh, wasn't really going to hurt them. They experimented a little bit by investing in a European company called Love Film. But then when the subscription you know DVD by mail business started to transition to digital, they recognized that it, it didn't pose a threat. You know they didn't want to lose the video shelf uh, in the everything store. So they started to compete, and they've they've taken a number of different approaches from you know a, a kind of iTunes like video download store uh, to to uh, bundling you know free 
movies and TV shows as part of Amazon Prime. So you have a, if you're a Prime member, you have a selection of, of video that you can stream if you have the right uh, TV setup. So he's paid a lot of attention to Netflix. I know there, I tell a story in the book very early on where he discovered that Amazon itself was putting Netflix ads in its boxes to customers. And he, <laughs> and he, he, he said something like, you know, why the people of the people running the ad inside Amazon, he said, are they, are they trying to ruin our business? Um, and so he, he's always watched Netflix among many competitors and, and I think he takes it seriously. You know, any any run on part of the Everything Store uh, is, you know, he considers to be a, a significant challenge. One of the fascinating things that you talk about with respect to Bezos is that he is this very rare creature in that he is an entrepreneur and an operator at the same time. That that he starts that started this company, starts these businesses, but he has also been a great manager. And I think that, a lot of early Amazon executives and employees would be shocked by that transition. You know, Amazon starts 19 years ago in a garage, you know, three guys, uh, you know, working on an online bookstore. And it grows very fast. And, you know, Jeff, he had been a a vice president at at a hedge fund, but I don't think, you know, he ever managed that many people, certainly. And it's rough going in those early years. And in fact, so rough that the Amazon board of directors in 99, you know, forces him to hire a chief operating officer. And, and that doesn't really end up working, you know, cause he, he is, uh, for lack of a better phrase at the time, really kind of a control freak and wants to be involved in every aspect of the, of the organization. And a lot of executives leave in 2000, 2001 as the stock price is falling. And not a lot of them, you know, to be frank, had a lot of faith in Jeff as a manager or or as a as an entrepreneur who could you know who could fulfill his ultimate vision. And and yet this is maybe the key to why he's been so successful, which is that he's managed to to evolve and to grow himself and to study leadership and to you know to to extract the best traits from books about leadership and other leaders that he admired, you know, like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. And he, he grew as a leader, and he managed to more efficiently use his own time. Uh, I think, the, you know, the narratives is like one great example of that. Just just time management, you know, so important. Uh, he started he started getting a sh- uh, using a shadow, so another promising executive at Amazon that could follow him around and follow up on, on key points. And these are little things uh, done over many years. He probably had, you know, a leadership coach in there as well. And, and today, I, you know, you, you, you could really argue that he, he's the best CEO in America right now, or at least the most highly esteemed. You know, he, he runs a company with 90, actually 100,000 employees and 70,000 temporary employees for the holidays. Just a massive organization that did so many businesses. And I'm not sure there's anyone versatile enough uh, to do it, but he somehow manages to pull it off. And after 19, 20 years, is he still as engaged? We see him, you know, personally buying the Washington Post. He has his rocket ship company. He certainly has many other interests, as you talk about. Is he as engaged after all these years in the core businesses? And what kind of succession plan exists within the company, do you think? Well, to the question of is he as engaged, I would say Yes and no. I, I don't think he is a, as engaged in the details of some of the older, more mature businesses. I think that, you know, retail, um, you know, runs with a great degree of autonomy under Jeff Wilkie, a, a longtime trusted lieutenant. 
But when it comes to the Kindle businesses, the digital businesses, maybe Amazon Prime, I think Bezos is very involved. And then he has a number of ways that he audits the entire company. So he might not spend a lot of time on it, but if he if he gets an email from a customer criticizing something about about the retail business, he'll engage and try to fix the problem or make sure that it gets fixed. And then there are these annual re- review sessions where at a very high level he reviews everybody's plans for the year ahead and results uh, from the year that's passed. So again, time management and, and a way in which he's just managed to disperse his insight across the greatest possible radius and it allows him to do things like buy the Washer the Post and spend a day a week at Blue Origin as his space company. Ask your question about uh, about you know um, the next leader, I, I I get the impression that they haven't spent a lot of time on that. You know, Jeff is only uh, 49, and uh, they probably think that that day of succession is many years away. And what is your take finally on on his purchase of the Washington Post? What is that about? Well, I think the opportunity presented itself. You know, we know that the Graham family was looking for a buyer, and there were others that were interested, like eBay founder Pierre of Midiart. I think Jeff saw an opportunity to, uh, you know, to to apply his business philosophy, you know, long-term thinking and 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 experimentation in in this other forum, and you know, probably saw that in a way this was, you know, not philanthropic, but here you're you're buying a you know a very public and beloved franchise that needs a benefactor. Uh, not, to, not to say that he'll run it as a charity, because I think he probably believes that he can make it work and make it profitable and re- restore it to its original luster. Um, but um, look, I mean, you know, as any big retailer uh, is is going to get beat up because you know the kind of laws of physics in retail. You you put a lot of smaller sympathetic competitors out of business, and and maybe that, that's part of it that Bezos saw that. As Amazon gets bigger, you know, he'll need to do some work on his own image and, you know, owning a newspaper and, 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 um, and, and to some degree kind of saving, you know, and this national asset might also do some wonders for his image. And really what that goes to is, is this sense that he has, and you talk about this a lot of long-term thinking and looking out over the long run, something that's unusual, not just in Silicon Valley, but unusual on Wall Street as well. That's right, and, and in a way, it's a luxury that he's even able to do it. A lot of companies are required to, you know, post a quarterly profit and, and show steadily increasing, you know, results quarter to quarter and, and year to year. And very smartly, Bezos and his original CFO Joy Covey in the in the nineties, you know, when they wrote their first letter to shareholders in, in nineteen ninety eight, they, they they communicated that. They weren't going to run the company like that, you know. That they they wanted the advantages of being a public company, but you know they were going to they they saw the ultimate opportunity of of the internet as being so large that they were going to manage the company for the long term and make a lot of risky bets that may not pay off for many years. And you know I think they studied Warren Buffett quite a bit and drew some lessons from his philosophy. And because they telegraphed that early on, and because they were then so faithful to, to that original statement. In fact, he releases that shareholder letter every year. You know, shareholders have gone along to the ride, and they, they understand that Bezos is building this franchise for the long term and for the day when e-commerce isn't, you know, single-digit percentages of retail, but who knows, maybe 20% or 30%. And then the, uh, and then the, 
you know, the, the market is massive. And maybe Amazon looks more like Walmart, you know, a three hundred or a four hundred billion dollar company. So, you know, it, it's it's uh, I guess it's easy to compliment him for having the long term uh, outlook, but it's also you know he's also just in a way um, he he has the luxury, and it's fortunate to be able to do it. I think there are a lot of CEOs that would love to be in that position to be able to take risky bets and lose money uh, and not be penalized for it. Brad Stone, the book is The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. Brad, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.